Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part one of the story of Commonweal, conversation and reflections with Commonweal co-founders Michael Lerner and Burr Henneman. Burr Henneman, welcome to the New School. Great to be back. In uh, 1975, um, you and I started this thing. Hardly a man is now alive. (laughs) 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 Right. Right. And um, we're fortunate that we have our friend and colleague Mary Callender here, who has been working on the collective memoir of Commonweal with both fortitude and grace for, what, about five years? years. (laughs) (laughs) We actually have a tremendous amount of material that is getting close to completion, and I've been the roadblock in that I haven't been able to focus on its completion. So I, on the one hand, apologize for that, and on the other hand, hope truly that we get through much of it, if not all of it, in the coming year, because the time has truly come uh, before memory and mortality uh, get in our way. So, uh, And it was a great help. Yeah. In reviewing that yeah. before today. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Burr, I, I suppose I should start just chronologically. Uh, I don't know the date in 1975, but um, I was walking on the Bolinas Mesa on Poplar Road, and I looked out at this um, piece of land uh, that housed the RCA uh antenna farm, as it's known locally, uh, a radio communications center from which um, uh, uh, communications with Hawaii and the Far East began. And I did have a vision of the site being a healing center. And the vision was that the phrase that came to me as I stood looking at it was that it would be a place for healing ourselves and healing the earth. And the the moment was quite cinematic because um, there were these low, wispy clouds of fog kind of blowing in off the ocean at the, you know, almost ground level or maybe 10 feet up. And then above them, was another bank of clouds, and the sun was kind of playing in and out of these clouds. So when I was looking, what struck me was that this shaft of light literally fell on this building, you know? (laughs) And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, And I had this vision of, you know, a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth. So the backstory, briefly, was that Uh, In 1972, I was a young assistant professor at Yale teaching psychology and politics, and I was sort of the hippie assistant professor who taught the course on the counterculture and uh, that kind of thing, and also taught contemporary and classical political philosophy. And in 72, I took a sabbatical working with the Carnegie Council on Children, run by my mentor Kenneth Keniston at Yale, to come out here uh, looking at how kids were growing up in, um, in the United States. And um, I uh, took a 
volunteer position at the Bolinas Public School uh, in a second grade classroom run by a Texas teacher named George Bailey. And I was helping uh, in the second, third grade classroom and also helping clean up the motorcycle shop at the school, which was run by Dave Duffin, who was a very extraordinary man who uh, over many years helped a lot of young boys characteristically many with learning disabilities, uh, to find a way of functioning by focusing on fixing bicycles and motorcycles. So my introduction... And to, riding them. And riding them, right. Fast, around, Fast loud around, around town. Right. right. So my introduction to Bolinas was uh, my uh, uh, girlfriend and first wife, Leslie Okoka, and I got a, rented a house from Tom D'Onofrio on the Mesa, and, um, and I had this job at the Bolina School. While I was there, I met Carolyn Brown, who was the, um, on the board, and she was the divorced wife of an Episcopal minister. He had previously been the minister at Princeton. I don't know, Princeton University or Princeton the town. I think Princeton University. They had divorced, and she was single-parenting three young children in Bolinas on a house on Elm Road. And... Um, so I, George introduced me to her, George Bailey, and she told me that she had started a school for um, uh, children with learning and behavior disorders called The Growing Mind in Berkeley, in an old factory in Berkeley, and asked if I'd like to go see it. So I went over to Berkeley to see this school, and, um, and she introduced me to a little girl who had been diagnosed retarded until an elderly Hungarian psychotherapist named Magdalena Palace took her off wheat and dairy. Mm. And this little girl swam up out of this apparent retardation, and she was learning disabled, but she was clearly not retarded. Well, I had studied child psychology at Harvard and Yale, extensively at Yale. Harvard is an undergraduate. Yale is a graduate student in a young assistant professor. I'd worked at the Yale Psychiatric Institute and uh, studied it a lot. And no one had ever mentioned to me that diet could affect consciousness. So this was a transformative moment. So what happened in uh, 19, I came out in 72. What happened in uh, 73, after I had met Carolyn, met this little girl, is that I resigned from a tenure track teaching position. It wasn't guaranteed, but it was clear that that was the track at Yale to start a residential treatment center called Full Circle in Dogtown for uh, delinquent kids. We built it from the ground up in an orchard. We tore down a barn in the Point Reyes seashore and trucked the materials down. And, you know, Rod Freeburn Smith and his wife Janet designed it. And with Tim Tabernick and David McCorkle, and Tim was the followed me as the executive director, we built this, I don't know what, 5,000 square foot building and started bringing these kids out of juvenile halls in to give them a good diet and, you know, do this kind of work with them. So that was um, starting in, I'm pretty sure, 73. Uh, so over the next two years, we built the school, we began bringing the kids in, but, and, and, it, and it ran for 30 years and did a lot of good work. 
But I began to feel that I wasn't cut out to do this for the rest of my life. And so, and the other thing was that I, I, in building Full Circle, I had written a report for the Ford Foundation, which was one of the first funders, called Tomorrow's Children, The Role of Nutrition in the Learning and Behavior Disorders of Children. And um, I had traveled all over the, the country looking at people who were doing this kind of work with children, Ben Feingold and his diet for hyperactive kids, Theron Randolph and clinical ecology, uh, Dr. Pfeiffer at Princeton, New Jersey, uh, who uh, was treating schizophrenics with nutritional supplementation. And so I had had the first experience of using my reportorial background as a basis for exploring integrative therapies, which was going to be the basis from which I later did my book on cancer. Um, so I had begun to, uh, I began to have two formative experiences that led to Commonweal. The one was going from an assistant professor at Yale to actually building a center for delinquent kids from the ground up with Carolyn Brown, which, again, it was completely clinically insane to give up a tenure-track job at Yale to start a school for delinquent kids. It was a crazy professional move. But I had already jumped off the cliff before I started Commonweal. And I knew that we had been able to start this thing. We'd been able to find the funding. We'd been able to start this thing. So on that day in 75, when there, in the back of my mind was the knowledge that I wasn't supposed to do this forever, but the other thing that was in the back of my mind was that the general principles of what I had learned from the work at Full Circle and looking at the role of nutrition and learning and behavior disorders of children, I had begun to generalize to a view that, we, that there was a broader lesson that the reason there were all these kids with learning and behavior disorders was not that all kids were born this way, but that there was an epidemic of this, and that this epidemic was related to a larger epidemic of chronic and degenerative illness, which was related to the environment. So at a conceptual level, it was clear to me that there was this picture emerging that the increased total environmental stress load on the biosphere and on human beings was causing an increase of casualty, specifically a casualty of learning and behavior disorders of children, but a broader casualty. And so this image that came to me walking on the mesa, this vision, was completely congruent with all of this, that I could imagine creating such a place, and I had that background. So that's the preface I promised, but I think it's useful. So I went back to the house where Leslie and I were living. We were living in Carolyn Brown's garage in a very makeshift place that, that we had cobbled together. And I told Carolyn, that, who I'd co-founded Full Circle with, of this, this vision. And she was standing in her kitchen, drying dishes. She had, was a large Nordic woman with long brown hair, striking, very deep, uh, profound eyes. Um, and I told her the vision. She was drying a dish, and she looked at me, and she said, well, why don't we try it? <laughs> and so one of the things about me is that I've always done these things in partnership. And I could never have done any of them without very strong partners, of which you and Carolyn were the first. 
And so Carolyn suggested that we bring you into this. And so at that point, I want to turn to you and ask you how your backstory, how you got into this, and what you remember of the beginning. This has been quite an exercise, trying to go back 40 years and to these things that at the time I couldn't believe forgetting any detail of it. And now it's, there's a lot of haze and I've made some discoveries reading uh, the history that Mary's put together and talking, comparing notes with yeah. you. Uh, um, and you're, I think, uh, um, having some better memories in some place and I may be in others. And, mm-hmm. um, but um, I don't remember really the actual first thing, but what I rem- the, I don't remember the people part of it. Mm-hmm. I remember, oh, yes, the RCA property, which I was in love with as anybody who had walked on it uh, back then, you know, trespassed and walked uh, wood and the uh, the magic forest, the bishop, the twisted, contorted um, old Monterey pines uh, that are died or slid off the slope now uh, along the cliff edge. The old buildings, um, this building, but also the um, the old hotel and the two cottages, which were really derelict buildings uh, then, as many of you in this room will remember. Um, and uh, But all of those things were attractive uh, to me. I'm, I got some building and frustrated architect background. Uh, was building my own house then, as many of us in Bolinas were in the 70s. Um, and those old buildings just cried out to be uh, loved and um, saved. Um, the, uh, many of the ideas really resonated strongly with me uh, um, of these key things. The health ones. Um, I came from a family that from uh, when I was a very young age, uh, a family that was very respectful of, um, of standard medicine in this country, but also very open to alternatives and uh, believed that my father, both my father and I, who had various health problems, had benefited from uh, non-standard medicine uh, when I was five, six years old, starting then, and um, and my father as well in that period, in the uh, late nineteen, starting in the late nineteen forties. Um, my um, my environmental roots, and I mean, for me. Coming, that was very much part of the the picture for me, um, and where I started at a, quite a young age, growing up on the Gulf Coast of Florida, really on the coast. I mean, the Gulf Mexico was out the front door, and then there was a mangrove-lined lagoon out the back door. Um, there was no television. There were. Uh, really no other kids around uh, with any distance that I could cover at a young age. A little more freedom when I could ride a bike on the main road. But um, And part of what I saw there, I mean, I, I, my one of my playgrounds was the Gulf of Mexico, but another one was these mangrove forests, which were magical. Um, 
mature mangrove forests that are just uh, mysterious and tropical and uh, could disappear in them and full of wonderful wildlife. And, and while I was a, a kid still, much of the mangroves on the island we lived on were ripped out uh, and converted to housing developments. Um, and I knew even at a young age that there was something wrong with this. Uh, I mean, for one thing, they were taking away some of my playgrounds. Um, and I, I knew from my parents that on a larger picture beyond me that this wasn't right. Um, and I think that was really one thing that was very formative for me in uh, keeping me on uh, either on or returning to environmental work of one kind or another. And this was would be an opportunity for a very positive uh, creative potential for working with this land um, and Commonweals being steward of this land if we could acquire it. Um, and also, it was came at a time in my life, um, I, a, a, a little over a year before I'd left my first career as a journalist broad, in broadcast news, I'd been working in San Francisco. And... Um, uh, and in the intervening year, I'd been, well, first of all, why I left that is uh, um, partly the state that Broadcast News was getting into, which is, hasn't improved since, went downhill then and hasn't improved. Um, another was person, more personal in that I found that it, journalism probably really wasn't right for me. I decided that I didn't want to write other people's stories. I wanted to be more involved myself in, in whatever the work was, uh, work that was right for me, um, rather than telling about somebody else doing it. Um, so it was wonderful timing in that regard. Um, it was good timing uh, in, in an, also in that I was getting some very necessary training <laughs> in the year between, uh, that would be helpful with Commonwealth in the year between when I left broadcast news and when we started really working on this. I was working for um, the artist Christo and Jean-Claude. Um, you may remember the Running Fence project they did in Marin and Sonoma counties. Mm -hmm. And for a wonderful year, I worked for them doing the environmental planning for it and the construction planning for building a 24-mile-long, 18-foot-high white nylon fence, um, which has some complications involved with it, uh, including such things that would be vital for commonweal, should it come to pass, of an enormously complicated permit process involving two counties, the Regional Coastal Commission, the State Coastal Commission, the State Lands Commission, on and on, an environmental impact statement that had to be done for it and so on. Um, I didn't realize at the time how useful that might, might be, but then I was politically active in Marin and, um, and active in environmental causes in Marin and so forth. And I think that's what Carolyn was, uh, uh, was seeing, uh, those connections. And, and pretty connected with the Bolinas community and the utility district where 
I was a regular and um, very involved in development of Bolinas Community Plan. Um, so all of those things were 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 useful, um, and and on the personal level, it was a wonderful time. And I think I remember um, a little skepticism about well. Why don't we get 1,200 acres on the California coast an hour from San Francisco and and fix up those old buildings and do this cool project? Um, but um, I uh, I think we share something of um, uh, some confidence that if we we certainly did then uh, that if we set out to do something we we could make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was thinking, I, I think I first heard from you probably uh, the idea, well, if it's meant to happen, it will. I don't know how far back I heard that from you. I don't know if it was in that early. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I wasn't ready to, um, I mean, I think that that would have been true for us then, but I think we were absolutely convinced it was meant to happen, uh, and therefore we would make it happen. <laughs> um, I've had some evolution in that, fortunately, in, uh, in, uh, in my relationship to work, which is uh, of, how, of the level of ego involvement in it, which I think has been a, a wonderful process for me over over the decades but there we were um and um i don't think it i don't know if you remember but i don't think it took me very long to sign on i don't think it did but and you two were of course very convincing i mean uh (laughs) if if uh michael and carolyn were a great sales team (laughs) and and with your vision Mm -hmm. of it it was uh and, and the raw material here and its appeal for me, it was an easy choice. You know, I was just reflecting that as precious to anything, as anything else is to me in this whole process is that we've been friends throughout the 41 years that we've worked on and off together. And um, I think one of the things that really brought Commonweal into being was that it was from the very start a community, it was a group of us. It mm-hmm. was not a single person. Right. And uh, we could not have done it without any of the three of us. Um, it's true I was the dreamer in the original vision. Um, but, uh, and Carolyn was the person that I couldn't do it without because I needed, she had some kind of, I couldn't have done full circle without her, I couldn't have done Commonwealth without her. She gave me the confidence to do it. And it's very interesting for me that extraordinary women have played a critical role in almost every phase of my work (laughs) who had the courage to partner to do these things. You know, Carolyn Brown is one, Rachel Naomi Remen and the Cancer Help Program at a time later when my whole board thought it was insane and uh, 
actually, you know, jumping ahead, but this was when all our funding collapsed. I had to lay off everybody. This was 1982. And, um, and I'm out without a job, but holding on to Commonwealth with two staff people left after the intervening period. And I meet Rachel and I tell her about this vision of the cancer health program. And she looks at me and says, why don't we do it just the way Carolyn did? And I couldn't have done it without Rachel. So there's this theme in my life uh, of partnerships with both men and women, but uh, crucially for me in terms of courage with women, um, uh, that uh, I couldn't have done these things without them. And um, so Carolyn played that role for me of just the confidence. But you were the person who actually made it happen in terms of both, uh, as you said from the experience with Christo, we faced several big challenges. Number one, we had to get RCA to agree to sell us the place ultimately we leased it. We can go on to that. Number two, we needed to get all the permits. Number three, we needed to get the Board of Supervisors to agree. Um, uh, number four, we had to actually build the place once we had it. And you were the guy that made all that happen, you know, among many other things that you made happen. But you were the person who took this crazy vision that I had and Carolyn had said, yeah, let's do it. And you joined us. And, and there were many pieces to that. One of them uh, was that you correctly perceived, it seemed to me, that the community of Bolinas had a huge interest in this because if RCA was going to sell this thing and it became the southern entrance to the Point Reyes National Seashore with a great big physical plant, that was not exactly what the town of Bolinas had in mind in terms of tourist traffic and everything else. So it was protective of Bolinas, and it turned out to be a source of enormous employment of local people over a 40-year period. I'll speak to the community part a little bit, but I... But I want to take except you, you say it wouldn't have happened without me and which is true the person who made it happen but i i, I have to push back on mm -hmm. that because uh, you know each of us mm -hmm. i mean certainly in, in the at the beginning it was such an equal thing i mean yeah. it would not have happened <laughs> you made it happen mm -hmm. really you had the vision mm -hmm. you came up with uh, the resources mm -hmm. that allowed it to happen um which has, was an enormous challenge, uh, and a, did a huge amount of the outside uh, support building, of, mm -hmm. uh, not just financial support, but the political support we need, and the, just the uh, um, and making the the a lot of the program aspects of it happen. That's true. Most of it. That's really. true. That was my part. I, I mean, it's. Uh, and even that's oversimplifying it because we worked across. There weren't no, it was a true right partnership. lines. Yeah, true partnership. A lot of it. Yeah, but but the, for the community stuff, and 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 if, I don't know if we'll have uh, uh, discussion time after this. But some of you who were here then can can add add or amend um, what I would say about it, my memories of that time. 
um, it, it, it got around that we were talking, there was, Michael and Carolyn and I were talking about trying to acquire the RCA property. And um, I think for a lot of people, there was real apprehension about that. Um, well, it's fine as it is, you know? I mean, let's just leave it the way it is. Um, and, and we knew that um, RCA was phasing out and was going to be leaving and would be selling it. Um, and there was skepticism about that. Well, are they really or, um, or, or just denial about it as well? Um, eventually, yeah, and there's just this reluctance to accept change, uh, which is so uh, normal and certainly true in Bolinas and certainly true in Bolinas in those years um, that uh, change is, is hard to accept. You're listening to part one of the story of Commonweal with Michael Lerner and Burr Henneman. And um, then it, the prospect of uh, it started to change to not these two guys buying it with some strange idea of, of creating a Commonweal, whatever that is, um, that it might become part of the National Seashore. Well, that was... Uh, even more threatening to a lot of people to have Point Reyes National Seashore come down to Poplar Road in Bolinas um, was, I don't think that was welcomed by a whole lot of people in town. Um, that also was going to happen. Eventually it became clear that that was going to, going to happen. And it also became clear that if Commonweal was going to happen, um, it was going to happen as part of that process. To, um, uh, and then there's a whole story and the political process of working with our congressman, John Burton, who, I mean, that was another one of the, we both had sort of lucky co connections with various people that turned out to be very valuable in, in, in allowing <laughs> Commonweal to happen. And, and I had history that went back with John Burton, our congressman, to the early 60s, uh, when I walked precincts for, for him when he, in San Francisco when he first ran for the assembly, um, and, and later connections when I was uh, on the AFL-CIO Central Labor Council in San Francisco and working with him and his brother, the Burton Machine, um, at, at political seasons then. And, um, and John and Phil were politicians of great political loyalty. Um, that was bedrock in, in politics for them. So um, we had that going for us too. Not that he was, he, he also was very sympathetic to um, Ed Weyburn, whom probably many of you know, who had a place in, in Bolinas for years and years and was uh, head of the Sierra Club for a long time. and. Uh, the, the non, you know, working with with Phil Burton uh, is responsible for adding millions and millions of acres to the national park system, especially the, the the land, the national parks in Alaska, but elsewhere too. The Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Uh, he and uh, a partner started an organization that were the main spark plugs, uh, working with 
uh, Phil Burton to make that happen. And one of the things they wanted to do was for these Bolinas lands and some other lands uh, to be added to the National Seashore. And um, they weren't interested in seeing a Commonweal in these buildings. So there was a whole negotiation that had to happen um, with John and Ed, and, uh, and we had help from uh, John's chief of staff then, who was Barbara Boxer, um, and uh, who went on to other things, uh, the Board of Supervisors and the Senate. Um, so the, um, and, and then there was the community plan, which had, was just, uh, had been approved, finished by the community and uh, adopted by the Board of Supervisors, which was very clear on a lot of things about not wanting Bolinas to become a tourist destination. Um, that that uh, development here shouldn't attract, I mean, people will come to Bolinas if they can find it, um, but that uh, we shouldn't be providing, expected uh, to provide facilities and take the impacts um, that would come with that, and many of which we're experiencing, which I, uh, now, which are all of West Marin are experiencing. But... Um, but uh, nonetheless, these lands have remained a buffer between the highest impacts in the seashore and the community of Bolinas, um, which was certainly part of our intent then and something that we promised the community. We, it would be a function we would play here. I want to circle back to some things you asked me to talk about <clears throat> and then continue this line. But you asked me to talk about the context of the time. Yeah. And so um, the context of the time, when Burr was an undergraduate at Yale, I was a graduate student at Yale. Um, um, but the context of the time when I was... Um, working on the Harvard Crimson, which is where I spent most of my time at Harvard on the newspaper. And when I was a junior in 64, uh, uh, the, Kennedy was assassinated. 63. What? 63. 63. Okay, thank you. In 63, Kennedy was assassinated. And I was uh, one of the principal people who covered the assassination for the Crimson. And, uh, you know, I went on, like you, in journalism to work for the Washington Post and the New York Times and various, you know, the Washington Post city desk reporter and stuff. But, I, uh, but my, like you, my journalistic training was fundamental to everything I've done since. It was mm -hmm. what really taught me to write yeah. in, in some fundamental ways. And, um, but there was the Kennedy assassination, and then there was the Martin Luther King assassination, and then the Bobby Kennedy, and there was... The growth of the counterculture. I was literally teaching the course on the counterculture at Yale, and there was um, uh, there was Vietnam, and there was the bombing of Cambodia, and there was just all this stuff was happening, and and there was this revolutionary period of time, and Bolinas was the epicenter of where a lot of the hippies from uh, the Summer of Love Better place to be. To. Bolinas in right. the Bay Area in exactly. California. Exactly. <laughs> it was the epicenter. So when Leslie and I got here in, um, in uh, 
72, um, and we walked into town. You, you couldn't believe what the street scene was in Bolinas, you know. And we had just come out from the day because we'd been looking for an, a place to live in San Francisco. We couldn't find one that would take our dog. And I walked into this little restaurant, uh, Scowley's, and um, there was Orville Schell sitting at a table. Well, Orville was the older brother of Jonathan Schell, who I'd gone to Dalton School with and who later wrote The Fate of the Earth, and Orville was to become head of the School of Journalism at UC Berkeley and so forth. But at that point, he uh, had, I think, recently written The Town That Fought to Save Itself. He was a close friend of yours. Yeah, um, and it would have been, he was still working on that. Oh, he was still working on it, okay. Very close friend of Burr's. So, and I had known Orville in New York, so I sat down and we talked to him and I began to, and, and the oil spill had happened in... 71. 71. <clears throat> and the history there was that the hippies who had moved out after the summer of love had been quiet and then the oil spill happened and they all came down to save the seabirds and organized... <laughs> And then the town fathers decided they wanted to turn Bolinas into Carmel and pass this huge sewage plan. And the hippies didn't like that idea, so they coalesced. They recalled the water board, which was the center of power. They canceled the bond issue to build this huge you know, sewage system, and they took over the town. So that had happened just before we arrived. That was 71, something like that. Yeah, no, yeah. 71. So we arrived in this town, which was not only filled with hippies and strange people, but it was also a place, in Orville's sense, the, the town that fought to save itself, that was actually transforming, you know. And uh, so the water board, which was the power center of this, was filled with people like Peter Warshall and, you know, uh, and Paul Kafitz and, you know. Rick Hewlett. Yeah, and, yeah. And so the time, I think, to understand Commonweal and all the other places that formed around that time, because it was by no means... Only, Jerry Jampolsky was out here yesterday who started the Center for Attitudinal Healing in Tiburon very, with his wife, Diane, very extraordinary couple. And they started the Center for Attitudinal Healing at about that time. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, uh, what Green's Restaurant started around that time. Later, yeah. So there was this whole set of institutions that started around that period of time, some of which survived, you know. And so uh, the context in which I was saying to Burr before we started, I said, you know, we're talking about starting Kamala. I said, you know, we were all clinically insane. And because it was insane to believe that three people could get a hold of a thousand acres of land and these derelict buildings and create something like Commonwealth. It was crazy, but it was not crazy in the context of the time. It was a time when people believed that things were possible and where the question of what the world was going to look like was really up in the air. I mean, people did not know there was such a transformation of consciousness. And I think what you and I and Carolyn brought to this is that we were sympathetic to the visionary ideas, but we were deeply practical people. And we had a piece of um, 
A friend of mine once said that Michael is open-minded, but he's not so open-minded that his brains have fallen out, you know? And there was that sense that, you know, we were doing something <clears throat> that actually could be done based on your experience with Christo fans, based on my experience in Carolyn's with Full Circle, based on the context of the time, it was actually plausible to sign up for it. Yeah, and... I, and I was thinking about the, that context of those times too, and and um, and our generation then, and gener generalizations are, are are dangerous. But um, there were a couple of generations of us then where there was, um, you know, a large and prospering middle class back when the middle class was prospering and growing, um, who kids didn't face the same. A lot of the kids didn't face the same pressures there parents did to who'd come through the uh, Great Depression and World War II. Um, and, and we had greater freedoms, I think, to, to look around and not just be obsessed with, God, we got to get a job. Um, and a, lot of, a bunch of us did spend a lot of time looking around um, and uh, uh, finding the things we wanted to be engaged in. And, and there was this great uh, questioning of authority that, that um, really uh, grew then and with loss of confidence in, confidence in government and large institutions to solve problems through the Vietnam War. I mean, this, uh, we, this, your vision was in 1975. Saigon fell in April of 1975. Um, Nixon resigned uh, August of 74 after the, the uh, Watergate nightmare. Um, we grew up in the civil rights movement years, which, and the, which was the first and certainly the largest social change movement in my lifetime, and there have been many in our lifetimes uh, since then. Um, but uh, that context, I think, was very powerful for us. To see, and, and many people, you know, social activism and grassroots movements really took off then. Um, and there were people who, uh, uh, anyway, that was very much the context, uh, I think, of the time as well. And for us personally, I think, um, in terms of your saying but that we were practical people, um, I think... I think you and I are both serial social entrepreneurs. Exactly. Um, and and um, one thing that entrepreneurs need to be social entrepreneurs or in the for-profit world is is practical, or you know, uh, got to have something more than dreams and perseverance. There has to be a strong streak of practicality that goes with it. And in some sense. This was a, a vision that was on the outer edge of practicality, um, and yet we were able to uh, make it happen. It took some starts and stops. And it did. Yes, there were some bad years, which we're not going to get into today. Yeah. But, but um, yeah. Serial social entrepreneurs does describe both of us. Uh, when I talk about Commonwealth to this day, I say, you know, you know, the original vision was healing ourselves and healing the earth. Uh, but the alternative description, there were various descriptions, but the one I still use today 
as I say, it's a think and do tank for social entrepreneurs. You know, you think, you do, and um, but we create a platform where gifted program directors who can raise their own money and have a vision of what they're going to do, and it's important, have a platform and a community in which to work. And uh, Commonweal really, we've never called attention to Commonweal itself. We let the work speak for itself. <laughs> and uh, there's a powerful Darwinian force at work, which if, if you can't raise the money, you can't do the project. And we're not going to raise the money for you, you know. Um, and that really has been a core part of how, how the place works. Talk a, okay, if you can't raise the money, let's, so let's, you had to find the venture capitalists, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, who would be willing to take a chance mm -hmm. on Commonweal. Um, I mean, certainly all the other parts were necessary, but goodness knows funding, funding was necessary. Yeah. Um, and what, what, that was your a huge response. You had the main responsibility for that by far. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Commonwealth's got a budget north of $4 million a year now, and it's been running for 40 years, and um, we probably started with a budget of a couple of hundred thousand dollars the first year or so. Oh, I think it was less, less than, than that. that. So, I know what we yeah. were paying ourselves, and also, we, <laughs> in those days, nonprofits could opt out of yeah. Paying Social Security, yeah. nonprofit employees, and we did. Yeah. So we have, could buy groceries. Well, the, I think, I mean, there are various answers to that, but I think if I step back from who, personally, who I am, I think um, it helps to have, um, it's helped me to have uh, some kind of quiet, charismatic energy. You know, and I think that draws people, you know, um, that's number one. The second thing I think it helps is I'm really interested in the truth. You know, I'm not interested in spinning stories for people. I'm interested in, you know, the truth. Um, um, and the third thing is um, that I think people sense that it isn't an ego trip to me that I am truly dedicated to using the skills that I've been given to uh, create uh, a better world, you know? Mm -hmm. So there was the energy, there was a commitment to the truth, and there's a commitment to a better world. Then outside of that, I had a set of markings that worked in philanthropy, right? You know, Dalton, Exeter, Harvard, Yale, taught at Yale, mm -hmm you know, gave that up to start a school for troubled kids, then started Commonweal. The story had a certain uh, uh, sociological charm to it mm -hmm. that was useful uh, in talking to funders. So, but the specific early story was that, and I'd started with Full Circle, and, but that became a Commonweal story. So the first people I talked to uh, were at the Babcock Foundation, uh, Julia Bloomfield, who was the director of the Babcock Foundation. And she provided some of the first support for Full Circle. Mm -hmm. And then, and this is a very interesting story, 
McGeorge Bundy was the head of the Ford Foundation. Well, I grew up in New York in the New York intelligentsia. My father was a political philosopher. My mother was a clinical psychologist. And they had parties. My mother threw great parties. And you could find McGeorge Bundy, Herman Kahn, who wrote Thinking About the Unthinkable About Nuclear War. You could find um, Arthur Miller. You could find... um, uh, you know, just the artists, uh, um, the artists, the playwrights, the political, uh, Brzezinski was, would come. Um, uh, Rothko was there. Um, you know, the, you could find these extraordinary, and I just grew up with them. I thought that was just how life was. And um, so I met Bundy. I remember m- meeting him, talking with Brzezinski, uh, who became... Uh, security, national security advisor, and Bundy, who was, became national security advisor, and Herman Kahn. I remember the three of them standing in front of my father's fireplace, their fireplace. So I met Bundy then, and then when I was at Harvard, and Bundy had become national security advisor, and the Vietnam War was going on, Bundy agreed to debate a panel of students at Harvard about the Vietnam War, and I was one of the three or four panelists. Mm. And the others were from Students for a Democratic Society and something else. Well, they were fierce on Bundy, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I was very opposed to the Vietnam War, but I was polite. I was civil. And that's been true of me all my life, that I work with kindness, right? Civility, at least, but kindness by preference. And so... Flash forward a few years, he's at the Ford Foundation. And now he's at the Ford Foundation. So I write him a letter to Bundy, say, Dear Mr. Bundy, you may not remember me, but I debated you at, you at Harvard and... I, you know, was teaching at Yale. I've come out here, and I met this little girl who was diagnosed with retarded, and it turns out to be learning discipline. And it, it seems like nutrition played a role. And we're starting this residential treatment center for uh, neurologically handicapped kids to see what role nutrition plays in the learning and behavior disorders of kids, which was the report I found. Well, he sent out, well, he gets a ton of mail. Yeah. But his secretary rescued this from the pile and showed it to him. So he sent out this guy named Saul Chavkin, who was a senior program person for him, who ended up doing a huge project for Ford in New York on, you know, uh, uh, urban development. And Saul Chavkin came out, and he looked at it and decided I was okay. And what he said was, Michael's going to, quote, cruise the crazies. In other words, I was going to go look at all the crazy people who thought this was true. And he, in turn, sent out a guy named Talton Ray, who was the head of their program-related investment Investment. program. So we ended up getting a grant from Ford Foundation to start Full Circle and a program-related investment loan to buy the property. And so when... I started Commonweal. I went back to Bundy, uh, and I think back to Salton Ray. Though I don't, re- did we get a program-related investment loan? I, I can't think remember. That. Eventually, yeah, we may well have. Yeah. yeah, but in any case, by by accident of birth and schooling, I had access, and by accident of biology. Um, I inherited my father's sort of quietly charismatic energy 
And those two forces together, along with a good project and a tendency to tell the truth, I think were key to developing what I never wanted to do, which was to be reasonably good at finding resources. There are people who are infinitely better than I am. I mean, look at Paul Farmer, for example, you know, who is a hero to many of us and who, you know, raises hundreds of millions of dollars. But on a small scale, I had the skills to do this. Yeah. So that's a brief version of that. So let's go back uh, just... Uh, you know, we have much more to cover than we have time to cover, but I do want to insert in here, we reached an agreement with RCA to buy the property for $1.8 million we didn't have. And then, and then um, why don't you tell the next start of this? You got a call from Huey Johnson. Yeah, well, let me tell us. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, the the world headquarters of Commonweal then in 1976 uh, was my trailer on Horseshoe Hill where I was living while I was um, supposedly building my house. Um, and uh, the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Huey Johnson who is the founder of Trust for Public Land and um, and a hero of mine and, and to a lot of people. Um, as a, perhaps the main person responsible for stopping the Marincello development in the Marin Headlands, which, um, if you don't remember it from living here in that period in the 60s, uh, maybe you saw the documentary uh, Rebels with a Cause um, that was had a lot of showings uh, around um, a couple of years ago. Um, and... And so Huey had started, had left the Nature Conservancy, started the Trust for Public Land, and and um, told me he was calling. To, I don't, here's my hero on the other end of the phone, whom I'd never met. And he said, I'm calling to let you know that you and Michael Lerner can forget about acquiring the RCA property and uh, building that boys' town out there, or whatever it is you want to do. <laughs> and... Um, I don't know how much. <laughs> so that was the beginning. Well, I think, that was my I mean, introduction to Huey. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll pick that up there. Let's just say we had, this is what I, I think we both agree to say. We had a very interesting, sustained conversation with Huey about this. And well, let me, let me yeah, add one, yeah, one other aspect yeah. to it. That, uh, uh, and he said he was going to acquire it. Trust for Public Land was going to acquire it and, and transfer it, it to, the, uh, to the seashore. seashore. And that um, um, Ed Weyburn and Amy Meyer, the co-chairs of, of People for a G Golden Gate National Recreation Area, had been in touch with him and sold him on the idea that Trust for Public Land um, should acquire these lands out here rather than those hippies in Bolinas. Um, and, um, uh, and this fit very well with TPL's uh, business model of acquire lands, preferably uh, at a bargain sale from RCA in this case, and then you sell it at uh, market value to the national government. But that's, uh, so we had a we had a, a, a civil dialogue with Huey about this, and we were very fortunate 
that our attorney was Doug Ferguson, who was the chair of Huey's board for a trust for public land. So in the long run, after some back and forth, we ended up with a 50-year lease on the property, and, he, and it was transferred into the Point Reyes seashore. And so that's a very and and so it wouldn't have happened without Doug Ferguson either had had Doug not been our attorney, and um, and it was in a certain sense Huey was a hero of mine too. I didn't know his work as well as you did by any extent, uh, but um, I think what we can say is it prepared us for the fact that some of these things were going to be tough conversations. Yeah. You know, they weren't going to all be easy, but we were civil. You know, we were never impolite, and we had a point of view, and he had a point of view, and thanks to Doug Ferguson, we were able to reach agreement on it. And we had to play real serious politics, too. Right. With, with John and Phil Burton, and uh, make the most of our connections there, and um, uh, and which, that was valuable, but, valuable, but also, also uh, Ed and Amy had, Plenty of uh, juice with uh, with Phil Burton as well, but John. This was in John's district, not Phil's district. And John also uh, was very. I mean, Bolinas was a community that probably voted 75, 80 percent for him uh, in elections, and um, and he was aware of the community's concerns about having a national park come up to its uh, front door, side door. Um, so he was concerned about, about that. You're listening to part one of the story of Commonweal with Michael Lerner and Burr Henneman. I think I, I, you, you pushed back at me, but I, I do have to say that on the politics of this, you were absolutely overwhelmingly the lead. And it was John's trust in you, Barbara's trust in you, uh, Gary Giacomini, when we needed to get the Board of Supervisors uh, approval, their trust in you. Um, I mean, you went on to be the head of the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, and then when you came back to Commonweal, did the ocean program and, you know, uh, wrote the legislation that changed the laws on how California governs its ocean, lobbied it through the legislature, got Governor Wilson to sign it, got support from Packard to implement it. So your career, both inside and outside Commonweal, has been as a deeply trusted um, advocate for policies that make sense. And um, I worked much more in the field of mind-body health, juvenile justice, you know, that aspect of program. Uh, but your credibility and standing is what, um, is what made Commonweal real. That has to be said. You're a man who does not say too much about himself, so I have to, I have to say it from time to time. So uh, let's go back now. We, we had this conversation. Then the, the two other things that happened that we have to say is that we needed to get the cong congressional approval for this, mm. basically. So we uh, tell a story of how we got the congressional approval for Congress. Like the site visit? What? The site visit? Well, <laughs> I think it was key, but uh, uh, actually, you. yeah, I mean, that, I, yeah. I, I think it's a good example of how things yeah. can fall out. I mean, 
um, it was going to go, the land was going to go into the seashore. Right. That would, Phil told John, I'm writing that land in. He, Phil was responding, Phil Burton was responding to Ed and Amy, and, and, um, and John was fine with that, and he had to figure out how to make his constituents as happy as possible, too. Um, and Ed Weyburn and Amy Meyer saying, this shouldn't be a compatible, compatible use, common wheel, uh, in this part of the seashore. And we were saying, oh, we'd be great. And, and, and it'd be a plus for the community and so on. And um, he did something he doesn't do very often. He, um, he asked Barbara Boxer, his chief of staff, to set up a site visit. And he'd come out, tromp around the land with an invite, Ed and Amy and Michael and me. And, um, and that's it, I think. Uh, there was this, the six of us, John and Barbara and Ed and Amy and Michael and I, um, walked around the land some, went over to uh, uh, the buildings, went up into the old hotel, which is Pacific House now, and climbed up. You could get to the third floor uh, still then. And, um, and John was standing looking out the window at the Pacific waves rolling in, and Ed was standing on one side of him. I was standing on the other, and... And after a while, John turned to Ed and said, so, Ed, what do you think should happen to these buildings? Um, and I don't think Ed had thought about that before then. And he sort of paused and said, well, it could be a visitor center for the southern entrance to the seashore. And um, John just sort of turned, looked back out the window and went, hmm. <laughs> and and it was I was had this feeling that it was decided right then that mm -hmm. common will would get written into the deal, and which is how how it came down. So so we got this. What, what was it called? Written into the congressional uh, c committee report of yeah. uh, Phil's chairman of the House Committee on yeah. Interior and Insular Affairs. That's where the he authored the bill, that it was an omnibus, I forget what the name of that bill was, that it, there was so much pork in that bill. Um, this is how Phil Burton, after losing a campaign to be Speaker of the House, how he built his power uh, was uh, in creating park bills, particularly this one, that had something in it for I don't know how many congressmen, uh, how many congressional districts. Um, and one of the national parks in it was the Point Reyes National Seashore that included these additions, the, the Bolinas lands and the RCA lands in, in um, the northern end um, on the Point Reyes Peninsula. Um, and in the committee report, um, the committee report was very strong on continuing agriculture on these lands and really encouraging you know, the Park Service to uh, uh, use the maximum tools they could for and, uh, keeping long-term agriculture on it, and um, said that uh, Commonweal would be included with its long-term lease that we already had with Trust for Public Land, that that would carry over uh, into the seashore. 
So once we had the congressional approval, um, we needed the Marin Board of Supervisors to sign off on this. Did we also need coastal uh, emissions? Yeah, uh, first the county and then the Coastal Commission. Commission. Yeah. Right. So I have a memory that you don't remember because we talked about it, but my memory is actually very clear yeah. that we first had to go to the Planning Commission. And the Planning Commission, in my clear memory, if anybody ever looks it up, we can find out, unanimously rejected Commonweal. I hope not unanimous. Uh, it was, it, well, I mean, it was their report. <laughs> not my friend, Laurie Duncan. Okay, all right. Well, they, <laughs> were, they rejected Commonwealth. Uh, so we had to go to the Board of Supervisors and overcome a, uh, re, a negative recommendation. And Gary Giacomini was our supervisor. And um, so we showed up in force at that supervisor's hearing. I remember... Uh, Billy Cambier and Avis Rappaport, who we brought down to, from Covalo to start the Commonwealth mm -hmm. Garden, uh, Avis's mother was oh, yes. an outstanding Marin citizen. Ruth, Ruth uh, Solomon, was yeah, a stalwart in the right. environmental community. Right, very and active. I remember her getting up and testifying at the, you know, when there was time for. Anyway, we packed the room, and since it was Gary's district, we had a unanimous supervisor reversal of the planning commission thing and permission to go forward. So I don't remember the coastal commission thing. What was that like? Uh, it's, it's strange that I don't, I tend to remember the bumps in the road. Right. Why I don't remember that one, I don't know. But I remember that uh, the tension around the coastal commission, which was the coastal act, um, uh, well, let's see. The, um, the coastal initiative was in 1972, and that sunset in five years. And then, so there was a big statewide planning involvement up and down the coast. To it took legislation to continue what had been was ending after five years with the initiative, and the that was in 1976. So. Uh, the, that legis legislation was passed, good, strong, the strongest coastal uh, protection legislation in the country, um, and uh, uh, which is why northern and central California coasts look the way they do instead of southern California. Um, and Jerry Brown, uh, in his first time around, signed that into law. So this was a year or two old when we were going, and it was all new, really, the procedures and whatnot are aspects of it were new, uh, that we were going to them. And they had a lot of tough requirements, and, and we were asking for a lot uh, here. And um, so, so that, uh, that ended up going very smoothly. But um, the, there was a fair amount of care that had to go into that, that right. process. And again, that was all you. And, you know, it's, fortunately, I had a lot of history with them, including uh, not just with running fence, but that was really, really valuable, the experience of how to do it and what's involved, but also just the connections. I mean, I wasn't a stranger coming in the door. So late 75, I think, you and I are out on the land now. We've gotten, we've been through this history, right? We had the vision we tried to buy it from RCA. We reached agreement. It has to be later. I mean, 75 was your 
vision. So oh, okay. we're, we're 77, late 77. Really? Okay. Well, except our incorporation papers are 76. 76. But we weren't on the land yet. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. We, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or we wouldn't have been using, I think, my trailer as our okay. address. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are things to be discovered. <laughs> right. <laughs> In any case, you think it's 77 we're on the land. On the land, yeah. All right. So here we are. This are we going to oh, wait a minute? Are we going to pass over what the September seventy six memo? Oh no! Let's talk about the September seventy six memo. <laughs> you talk about it because I wrote it to you. You don't want to start. Um, I think. Well, l- let me start by saying this: we we came down to a vision that Commonweal would have a clinic, a research institute, a residential center, and a farm. Those were the four core things. And uh, we took the, the first, before we were going to call it, early on, I want to remember it, Carolyn and I, before it became Commonweal, we were going to call it the Institute for Planetary Services. That will give you an idea of what it was like. So I remember Carolyn and I went to Judge Mary Conway Kohler, who was the first juvenile court judge in the state of New York Mm -hmm. and was a close friend of Ruth Chance at the Rosenberg Foundation. And Ruth was one of the earliest supporters of Commonweal and also a full circle. She said, lose that name. She said, she looked at us and said, now, dears, you know, (laughs) that won't do. So I was, uh, after that, I was sitting in uh, my living room. I can date this because it was after, uh, around my son's birth, uh, after my wife Leslie and I had gotten married. So it was 75, and I was trying to think of a name. And Leslie said, Why, what about Common Wheel? Common, W-H-E-E-L. And I thought, that's nice. And then I thought... Not common wheel, but common wheel. So we had a name that would pass muster. Uh, it turned out to be a very good name because it means the well-being of the community, which is what common wheel is all about. So, um, so the memo was... Uh, we weren't on the site. We yet. weren't on the site yet. But, I, but we were... We must have been... We'd gotten the deal... Agreed with Huey and TPL. Right. That and was settled. We were still, there were actually two memos in my memory. One memo was the memo where I talked about, okay, we can do Commonweal even if we don't get the land. That's in this memo, too. That's in this yeah, memo, yeah. right. Also. Uh, and you were saying we're 80%, 80% sure likely of, to get it. Like, likely, yeah. likely to get yeah. it if, you know. Right. Huey's agreed to it. Yeah. We don't have the lease right. signed yet and that sort of thing. Uh, you go on from there. We were. Yeah. And this was, I don't know, it was this 16-page memo or something yeah. like that. Yeah, Going into incredible detail uh, on some things, very sketchy details on, on some, great detail on making the clinic happen. Right. And timetables and, and uh, uh, you know, down to... Um, not quite down to what furniture is needed for, for the right. clinic. I'm not down to that level, but just a cut above that level of detail. Um, and uh, and it was uh, and also, but 
starting off saying, and if we don't get the land, we can do this, all of this stuff someplace else anyway. So we'll plan as though we're getting it online, but at the same time, we'll be ready to put it someplace else if we don't get the land. <laughs> and, and the opening date for the clinic will be March 1st. This is written sometime in September. <laughs> and we, you know, we'll hire a medical director in December, by December, right. and um, and sort of like, sort of like, you get the picture. <laughs> and um, I don't know if we had uh, uh, if Susan Dunn had joined us by then or, or not. I think Susan joined us when we were on the land. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Susan, who subsequently died. Uh, was a wonderful early, really critical early person and who played a key role, Burr reminded me, in something was fundamental to Commonweal, which we became the largest comprehensive employment training act employer in West Marin. We had something like 40 slots, uh, uh, which we filled with the people who uh, uh, renovated uh, this building and uh, did a tremendous amount of the work on the site. There's a federal job creation program yeah. called CEDA, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act. And, and Karen, were you part of that hiring? Do you remember? Karen Willig? Yeah. I think early 80s. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. And Susan, yeah. uh, Susan Dunn uh, figured this thing out. I mean, Susan had no background in any. Right. any this stuff either right. um, figured out how to work that system, and and we got we hired. I think it was forty number. slots. Yeah. yeah, and I think it would, may have been a CETA program, uh, also that uh, in the summer before, where uh, we hired Bloomington High School yeah. kids who helped uh, clean out. Uh, I mean, this whole floor and that whole floor above, which were filled fifty-eight with feet by fifty-eight yeah. feet, was crammed with. Uh, uh, you know, electronic, electrical equipment. Um, but so we, we cleaned it out, and then Burr, with the architect Steve Matson, designed the clinic, which is the way the place is set up now, on the ground floor, and Burr supervised the construction using all these CETA people. Yeah, this whole floor was just yeah. an empty room yeah. uh, mm. at that point with those columns in it. Yeah. And that and, lasted and, about how long? I think I it lasted five years or something. Quite, quite a while. I, yeah. I think beyond when, when yeah. I left in 1980. But, um, and so I don't rem I, what I don't have, I mean, I found, I uncovered that mm -hmm. memo a few years ago mm -hmm. and read it and had a good laugh. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it had to have been clear to me at the time we probably weren't going to open the clinic on March 1st <laughs> um, and some of those other things. But um, but something, you know, looking back, I, I realized what, what, um, that it was always important for, for you to have a plan and a concrete plan. It may be a different plan next week. You know, if 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 realities come up, if if realities come up that make it necessary 
to change the plan. Michael would change the plan, but it but would be the next version uh, of, of that plan. And, and then there could be, there'd be inevitably another one after that because other factors would, would come up as well. Um, but that's the way you, I mean. That's how I work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like, I like to give people a sense that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and it, it isn't an artificial sense because, but I'm not attached to my plan. So what I do, and almost, and I do it to this day, I put out a plan, and then I say, in effect, does anybody have a better idea, you know? And if somebody has a better idea, terrific. But the point is, there's something to people to respond to. Right. And there's, a, a, there's an image or a vision of how we best thinking at this time. Uh, you know, when Susan Braun was the executive director here for four years, a world-class nonprofit CEO. And when Susan was here, uh, she and I deeply agreed, this was you know, only five years ago or so, that we didn't believe in a strategic plan, but we believed in strategic planning mm -hmm. as an ongoing process. People put all this work into strategic plans, and then typically they sit on the shelf. But if you have a strategic planning process, which is a continuing process, which is what Susan and I did and what Oren and I do now with Arlene Alsman and Vanessa McCott, uh, then there's a constant revisiting of where you think you're going strategically. So, um, yeah, I do have that need to think out in considerable detail where I think we're going. And then you're absolutely right that it changes um, on an ongoing, continuing basis with no assumption that it should be otherwise, you know? So this plan, yeah. though, I mean, we're... Yeah. So we've been working together yeah, from yeah. the vision and right, heading land. Right. Now we're working together for the first time. On uh, making... On the ground. Yeah, right. On, on the ground. So this, and this reads, like, yeah. this is what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so, you know, over time, I think uh, I and then and then Susan and I mm -hmm. uh, came to understand of how this process has to be um, of uh, feeling free to read these plans. Say, well, that ain't going to happen, <laughs> and uh, not on that timeline. <laughs> or and go talk. Hey, Michael, let's talk about this. Um, I think you know this may be possible if we do it. Right. That way or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, and we were under tremendous pressure to get stuff done. So we've got something to show. Um, you really felt that pressure. Um, uh, funders wanting to see results, of course. And we all wanted to see results. We, we'd been working away at this for a few years, a couple of years or three years or whatever already. And uh, so it was wanted to get thing, things to come together as quickly as possible. But uh, that was a, a, an interesting uh, method of a uh, uh, way we found to work together right. on that. Sort of, we'd feel pretty free to edit the plans. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, moving on past CETA and the, the clean-out of the buildings and the construction of the clinic and all that, 
Um, another key early participant in this was my brother Steve Lerner, who was the director of the Research Institute and had worked with me at Full Circle before that. And, um, and Steve came on early and... Um, with CETA staff, we created this research institute and began publishing uh, Common Knowledge, which was a, uh, a you know, like a magazine, a, a newspaper magazine, um, on I think a quarterly basis, um, and um, and had some extraordinary people working with Steve, um, who are some of whom are still. Uh, with us today and in the community. We also did hire a medical director early on, Brian Bausch, uh, and started the clinic. So we started the clinic, we started the Research Institute. Well, well yeah, what, oh, so here's an example yeah, of yeah. plans changing. Right. Yeah. Um, so that the September 76 memo, the famous <laughs> September 76 memo, talks about the clinic's going to open in five months. Uh, and and that was the alternative clinic out. Right. What do we call it? Not alternative, it was the... Uh, yeah, that was the, that was the clinic out here. Out here. Which was going to continue the work that we had started at Full Circle with kids with yes. learning and behavior disorders, but also work with adults with chronic environmentally related problems. Yeah. Well... There is no mention in the September 76 memo of, uh, of a community family health practice in downtown Bolinas for, uh, for the community of Bolinas. But a year from then, roughly, we opened a, uh, the clinic downtown, first in, in uh, what was the Sharon building then and half of that space, and then later moved it to the College of Marin Marine Lab, which we... Uh, leased from the College Marin, the Marin Community College District, um, um, and and the clinic out here still hadn't opened yet. Actually, so there was a lot of improvisation, a lot uh, as we went along. Rem remind me why, how, how the decision was made to do the yeah. downtown, and this was before Coastal uh, Health Alliance, of course. And, and let me say something else about this, which is that when I started full circle with Carolyn, and then when I started Commonweal, I knew very little about nonprofit management, you know. So in retrospect, um, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a quite chaotic period of time in many respects. But part of the, it would have been less chaotic if I had been a seasoned nonprofit director, you know. So I just know that. And completely accept that. That's who I was. Um, but so how the, the community clinic started was that the physician who'd been working in town, running a, a little clinic out of that building, he left. And so the community was without anybody to do this stuff. And we had hired Brian Bausch. And so we had a medical director. This is my memory of how it worked. Uh, and uh, we met Steve Rosenberg, who uh, was a very experienced guy in terms of creating community clinics. So um, he knew the bureaucracy. He knew the bureaucracy. He knew it. So Steve and got us 
I think he may have gotten us permission both for this clinic and the downtown clinic. So again, Susan Dunn working. And Susan Dunn worked with Stephen Rosenberg. Um, and um, so we ran the community clinic because uh, we had the ability to do so. We were working on this clinic, and it seemed like the right thing to do for the community. But the uh, 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 Brian Bausch was the first medical director, again... What's fascinating is how many of these people remained friends and on good terms with us. That the relatively few people have left Commonweal unhappy. A few have, but not a lot. And after uh, Brian Bausch was the medical director, uh, Charlie Thompson came as medical director with his girlfriend uh, uh, and I think later wife, Susie. And so... Both Brian and Charlie were first-rate integrative medicine practitioners. So, again, from the start, and this has been pretty characteristic of Commonweal, it may be improvisational, but we're working with extraordinarily gifted people from the start in almost any part of Commonweal that you look at. And also, it was very flat from the start, you know, that... If somebody was the medical director or the director of the research institute or whatever they were, they had tremendous latitude to do what they thought was right. And we relied. There was a strong bond of trust and a real commitment to hiring extremely qualified people. And there was no... Another thing I liked about it was we were never a spiritual community. We were never an intentional community. We were a place to do good work. We were a place to do good work. You could believe whatever you wanted. You could have whatever perspective you wanted. If you were extraordinarily good at what you did and able to handle what you showed you could handle, we welcomed you. And we had this commitment to being at least civil and preferably kind with each other, which created a sense of community that made people want to stay. So we ended up with staff people who have been here 20 to 30 years sometime, you know. So that, to me, you know, because I believe to go out of this context that love is the most important dimension of um, healing and of how the universe works, um, uh, and kindness is the step down from love into, I mean, we all, can think whatever we think about what love is, but we know what kindness is. And so kindness became part of the deep fabric of this place from early on, which created the sense of community. And the community had the resilience and the strength to make something impossible happen. Yeah. yeah. So where should so we go from you there? Were, you were head, headed into the research and so did, did you do the research no that's enough because I'm going to talk to Steve about the research yeah, yeah. institute yeah where should we go from there? well talk a little about the I, I think what would be good to talk about would be um, the major projects that you have been involved at at Commonweal not only in this first period but I'd also love you to talk about the ocean program but at the beginning, one of the major projects was the offshore oil drilling issue. Right, right. <clears throat> um, and that goes back to the Research Institute because <clears throat> um, 
Steve, Steve Lerner's interests were wide-ranging, and he would, he would dig into wonderful topics, some of them fairly local, like the Farallon nuclear dump, um, and some of them, you know, global, global environmental concerns. Um, and, uh, oh, another one was uh, um, uh, electromagnetic um, um, radiation, pollution and radiation yeah. and health effects. Um, that gives you some idea of the breadth. Well, one of the things that he got turned on to was um, that coming up was going to be a federal um, Bureau of Land Management sale of leases for development of offshore oil and gas in five basins off the northern and central California coast. Um, one of those basins being off San Mateo County and another one being off Sonoma County, uh, just upwind from the um, Point Reyes National Seashore, plus three other uh, areas where uh, leases would be uh, put up for, for sale. And no one in, it wasn't on anybody's radar screen in, in northern and central California. There was some old uh, uh, offshore oil development in southern California, as you, as you probably know, that you can see those platforms offshore in Santa Barbara and so on. Um, and people really didn't see it coming. The environmental community certainly was not tuned into it. And the first thing a lot of people heard was in Common Knowledge, an article that Steve wrote about it there. And, um, and Steve argued that Commonweal should get involved in this and take this up seriously because so few people were. I mean, that this was, this should be, should have our name on it. Um, and the three of us talked about it. And, um, and I was arguing that we shouldn't, um, that we had plenty to focus on. Um, I also realized that if we got involved in it, it would probably be me, yeah. uh, not Steve. That was clear that it wasn't going to be Steve, that it wasn't going to be you. Let's see, who did that leave? Um, and, um, and I thought my plate was pretty full uh, already with the other things around here. Um, but I, I was outvoted on that <laughs> and um, took it on. And so that was my first uh, program involvement with Commonweal as opposed to on the other side of the uh, line of, and really became deeply involved uh, over the next, uh, let's see, that would have been in early 78, much of 78 and 79 until I left at the end of 79 to go to Point Reyes Bird Observatory. You're listening to part one of the story of Commonweal with Michael Lerner and Burr Henneman. I'm working with a handful of other people in, in uh, Northern and Central California and Gary Giacomini and uh, coastal uh, supervisors up and, down, uh, up and down the coast started organizing to, um, to uh, resist that lease sale that was going to be coming up, lease sale 53. Um, and that became a, uh, a, fortunately, a lot of other people eventually joined in, or, or some key people joined in. Um, and uh, that became a very, very successful environmental 
uh, fight that um, people who took over after after I moved on from that, um, people like Warner Chabot particularly, and and um, and uh, not here at Commonwealth, but and Richard Charter in Sonoma County uh, took that into to Washington, turned it into a very successful campaign, won uh, the congressional moratorium on uh, offshore oil development on, on this coast that has been renewed since then, and turned it into a, a political issue that no one was paying, from, from what no one was paying attention to, to since then. It's been a litmus test for a statewide candidates, certainly since then, of both parties, you know, candidates for governor at some point need to go to Monterey, stand on the beach with a camera uh, and the ocean behind them and say they're pledged to no offshore drilling off here, northern and central California. But that, which, that's where that one went. And, and I, you know, Steve was right. We, we should uh, get involved, should have gotten involved. And it's a did. fascinating first example of a whole set of initiatives over common, over mm-hmm. 40 years that have had tremendous impact. I mean, uh, I won't get them all, but the oil one is one. The pioneering work on the role of nutrition in the learning and behavior disorders of children is a second. Obviously, the cancer help program uh, and the Bill Moyers film about it and its critical role in legitimizing the field of mind-body health as a third. The launch of a whole set of environmental health um, uh, programs, including Healthcare Without Harm, the International POPs Elimination Network, um, you know, the uh, Keep Antibiotics Working Network, just a whole series of environmental health initiatives, the Juvenile Justice Program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Commonweal has been a seedbed for a whole set, starting with this one, which you were the principal author of, a seedbed for a whole set of very effective uh, projects. And, um, and this was the first. This was the yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I want to open it up for questions in a, yeah. in a few minutes, but before we do that, you went to PRBO in 19, Point Reyes Bird Observatory, to direct that in 79. And the beginning of 80. Yeah. Beginning of 80. And uh, you came back um, in 1997 to direct the Oceans Program, which went through 2012. Just to, I mentioned briefly my version of what you did in the Oceans Program, but... Could you say that with more clarity and authority than I did? Well, I'll, I'll be authoritative about yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, how do I keep this brief? I didn't know we were going into that territory, yeah. but um, <clears throat> the um, the genesis of that was after I uh, related to. Uh, an effort to reform the way California manages marine life and fisheries, which has been quite poor. Um, And uh, after I left here uh, at PRBO, there were issues uh, that I was very involved in, not only being executive director, but involved on the program side, uh, 
doing the conservation work that uh, that uh, PRBO did, and one of the main ones was uh, the main one was um, uh, some of you will remember the problems with gill netting, uh, gill netting fisheries along the California coast, and that were uh, that developed rapidly after the Vietnam War. There were a lot of Vietnamese uh, refugee fishermen, and that's uh, who were using huge, long monofilament gill nets that were killing tens of thousands of seabirds and lots of, you know, sea otters, uh, marine mammals, and so on. And um, that sort of had PRBO's name on it, part of it. The seabirds dying in, in that fishery were birds that nest on the Farallon Islands, which uh, PRBO managed for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we had the data on this stuff. It was obviously... Um, our responsibility to be involved in that issue. And so I worked a lot with the Department of Fish and Game and the Fish and Game Commission and the environmental community and eventually the legislature because under the system then um, only the, le the legislature managed commercial fisheries, not the Department of Fish and Game. Odd but true. Um, so you had 40 or whatever assembly people um, uh, managing fisheries in the state. Um, and... So I, I learned a lot about the dysfunctionality of how the state managed fisheries. Then, sometime after I left that, I worked for the uh, Center for Marine Conservation, which is now the Ocean Conservancy. And um, it was just getting involved in federal fishery management. And so I, I got involved in that and uh, was appointed as the first environmental representative on one of the main their main bodies of the Pacific Fishery Management Council, the four-state um, body that manages fisheries in California, Oregon, Washington, and regard to, to uh, Sam and Idaho also. Um, and uh, spent four years sitting around tables with commercial fishermen and sport fishermen and learning a whole lot about um, the dysfunctionality of federal fisheries management. And I didn't want to have anything to do with either state or federal fisheries management after that. But in 1996, some really good people were uh, elected uh, to the uh, California Assembly, uh, in, including a wonderful guy named Fred Keeley from, from Santa Cruz. And a number of these uh, new assemblymen wanted to uh, do something for the coast uh, for reasons which I won't go into, but similar to a, the situation we just had recently with a, the head of the Coastal Commission being fired. Um, there was a similar incident then um, uh, that effort lost, and as a result, there were a number of Democratic pro-coast assemblymen elected. So Fred Keeley wanted to do something for it, and he decided that reforming fishery management would be it. And a number of people said, well, you got to talk to Burr Henneman. I had this odd, in, in the environmental community, I had this odd history of experience with both federal fishery management and state fishery management really on the inside of it um, that nobody else had. So um, it seemed that I needed to take that on it. But here was this blank slate to be able to work with. Fred was saying, what should we do? Let's do um, the reforms that it takes. So that was a wonderful opportunity and, and ended up with a, a, over a two-year process negotiating for Fred a, uh, a large reform package 
uh, for how the state manages fisheries, which was passed. And, um, and that was the, the last bill that Pete Wilson signed into law as governor. Um, and then um, what followed that, though, I mean, that was the easy part. The, the, the hard part was the states implementing that stuff. And, um, and that's where I put together an ambitious program to help the state agencies doing it. Um, and, and with their blessing, um, they wanted the help. So, um, which has been kind of my style in, in how I've tended to work. I've done advocacy work some, but I'm most comfortable working more on the inside, like helping agencies uh, do their jobs better, uh, writing legislation that uh, um, fixes problems in natural resource management, that sort of thing. Um, so this was a several-year program, bringing in other, bringing in scientists, bringing in policy people to work with the with the state agencies and uh, put this ambitious reform legislation into effect. Um, and that, um, and then that morphed into various other other things as well. There was the um, something quite off the wall um, was um, a uh, ended up somehow raising uh, causing to be uh, uh, appropriated uh, forty million dollars for a. Uh, coastal observing system um, that has land-based um, uh, radar that bounces signals off waves. Oh, physical oceanographers love this. Well, I'd never worked with physical oceanographers before, a lot of marine biologists and, and ornithologists and whatnot. So this was fun for me. I got to work in, in with physical oceanographers a lot, which is a whole uh, different world. Uh, because the agency that we directed the money to didn't have any experience with it either. It says, mm. you got us into this. you got to help us implement this. So it was uh, working with scientists from Scripps and, and uh, Jet Propulsion Institute and all the various UC campuses that have marine programs. Um, and it's this really interesting uh, technology for, for imaging what's coastal currents, which are much more complex than um, people, than, than oceanographers realized. Um, and one of the transmitter receiver stations is actually on the Commonwealth property out, out on the cliff, another one at Point Reyes and uh, so on. Um, so that was sort of an oddball diversion for me that was fun. I got to learn about some other stuff. Um, and then, but even before my, I'm really sort of a seabird person and uh, uh, became that even more so. My love of seabirds uh, goes way, way back to childhood. And I was able to indulge that a fair amount when I was at Point Reyes Bird Observatory, especially given the, our responsibility for the Farallons and the time I got to spend out there. Even going back, I first started going to the Farallons in 1971 um, and had done a lot of work with seabird conservation and uh, in 2006, the Packard Foundation 
board, some of the family members decided they wanted to develop a um, global uh, marine bird conservation program. And they asked me and an uh, old friend and colleague if we'd be interested in designing it for them. And um, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, so designed a program for them for shorebirds. He specialized in the shorebirds. I specialized in the marine birds. And then they asked me to stay around. He had a, another job, and they asked me to stay around and manage the, uh, the initial years of that, um, doing the granting and so on, which um, has, was a, a wonderful experience and took me to wonderful seabird places in the world but, and meeting terrific seabird conservation folks who are doing great practical projects and so on. <coughs> I want to open it up. I want to apologize to you all. I let this run a little longer than I usually do. So if some of you need to leave because it's noon, it's understandable. But I'd like to open it up to any comments or questions that any of you would like to make. Yes, yes Karen. Way back in the 70s, early 80s, there was a Dr. Michael Rosenbaum here. And there seemed to be a model of medicine. People would come in for allergy testing, Mm, foods were eliminated, vitamins were encouraged. Has that part of the medicine been phased out or eliminated? Well, it's a great question, Karen, and thank you for being part of the staff in the early years. Um, uh, yes, Michael Rosenbaum, Brian Bausch, Charlie Thompson, they all worked in the clinic here. All of them went on. Michael Rosenbaum had a long career in Marin as a holistic uh physician. Uh, Brian Bausch has, uh, we're still very much in touch with Brian, who uh, has a specialty, among other things, in cancer and is a leading integrative medicine physician in, in northern, um, in Petaluma and so on. Um, that approach, we've remained deeply interested in what was first called holistic medicine and then called integrative medicine and now sometimes called functional medicine, although integrative and functional are two different themes in contemporary medicine. Uh, and th through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is our partnership of 5,000 people around the world thinking about how the environment affects human health, we explicitly make the link between what we call the ecological paradigm of health, which goes back to the original description of Commonweal as a center for service and research in health and human ecology, which has remained amazingly accurate, although we don't call it that now, but as a center for service and research in health and human ecology. And what we keep rediscovering is that given the complexity with which the environment affects human health, that one of the smartest ways to sustain or recover health is with an equally complex and integrative holistic response. In other words, the mainstream medicine does a very important thing with these laser-like targeted treatments. But if you have cancer or heart disease or diabetes or memory loss or whatever it is, what really works best is an integrative approach that characteristically involves diet, exercise, stress reduction, and finding meaning or support in your life. And those four things are at the heart of Dean Ornish's 
reversal program for coronary artery disease and prostate cancer, and they're at the heart of functional medicine, the work of Mark Hyman and Jeff Bland and many others. We've done a lot in functional medicine. Uh, they deeply relate to food allergies and chemical sensitivities. And so all of the early work that we did in the clinic continues. What happened was that when we lost, when CETA completed its funding uh, in 1982 or so, and the San Francisco Foundation stopped funding us in a major way, we lost our two major sources of support. We had to lay off the virtually the whole staff. And when we rebuilt Commonweal, it was on a new model that instead of having institutional frameworks like a clinic that you'd have to fund forever, we decided that we would be a flexible instrument of human service and that we would do projects and programs, but each one would have to pay for itself. And when the funding ran out, that program would end, and we would look for new people with the vision to do something new that was creative and worthwhile. Other comments or questions? Yeah, Tina. I notice I'm captured by the fact that you have a 50-year lease and it's the 40th anniversary, and there's certainly been um, much discussion, if not controversy, about leases in the seashore. Thank you for that question, and we naturally are paying attention to that question. I think two things to say. Uh, Oren Slasberg and Jennifer Altman organized a wonderful dinner that we held recently at, in Pacific House celebrating the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service and the 40th anniversary of Commonweal and the Seashore. Cicely Muldoon, who's the superintendent of the Point Reyes Seashore, uh, was there with a number of her senior staff. And what we did was to celebrate a 40-year partnership that has really worked extremely well for both Commonweal and the seashore. So there's a deep sense of mutually respectful partnership for us. And again, uh, you're right that there are controversies about the ranch leases, uh, although the Park Service favors them, but others do not. And there are controversies about the oyster farm and so on and so forth. Again, our mode has been to work with mutual respect and kindness and a real desire to get it right because we deeply believe that the National Park Service is a gem. It is an amazing gift to the American people. And while we wanted to own the land, uh, we are honored to be partners in the Point Reyes Seashore. Now, will we be able to continue the lease? At, the Park Service would certainly like us to, but what we will face is the challenge that um, when a new lease is written, they will have to reevaluate the land according to current land values, and there's a formula for how the rent will be, and we're going to have to figure that out. My point of view about it is twofold. One is that, or threefold. One is, um, it goes back to the beginning. If this is meant to be, if it is meant to continue, if we continue uh, 10 years from now to be, or 15 years from do, doing first-rate work, I think we'll find a way. That's the first one. 
The second one is, if we can't do it here, Commonweal is a movable feast, and we will find another place to continue the work. And the third one is, if we can't do it here and we can't move it, then we should just celebrate 50 years of extraordinary work because ultimately an organizational form is not what matters. We're part of an endlessly abundant regenerative community of human beings who decide to devote their lives to service. And that continues with different organizational forms over time. So Jerry John Polsky has a lovely line in his work at the Center for Attitudinal Healing. He wrote a book by this title called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And so if we enable ourselves to be fearful about the future, we lose the opportunity to do the best work we can do right now. And continuing to do the best work we can do right now is by far the greatest guarantee that the work will continue in some form. So. It's certainly helpful to me to hear that the sea shark appreciates it. They do Very appreciate it, so. yeah. deeply so. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, either. thank you, Dina. Other comments, questions, reflections? Well, th- yes, Elia. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, and all of you who have done this work over the years. Just from all of us, thank you. Burr, I wanted to ask you for any last reflections of yours. What's it been like for you to... Uh, be part of this enterprise and so central to it. Uh, I mean, it feels like home to me. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, it uh, was felt like home at the beginning, yeah. and when I came back, yeah, it felt like home. And when I'm on the fringe, yeah, now of Commonwealth, and it yeah. feels like home. Well, I cannot ever thank you enough for 40 years of partnership and the work, and. Um, I'm very glad that you were willing to have this conversation. All right. A treat. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to part one of the story of Commonweal with Commonweal co-founders Michael Lerner and Burr Henneman. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us.